we're starting a new series in the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews is one of those, if you're a pastor or a preacher, or even just one studying the word, it's kind of a large task. One, it's, it's, a, it's a deep theological book. It's, it feels like one of those uh, tasks that when you preach out the book of Hebrews, there's so many Old Testament references that it's not just preaching out of the New Testament, it's also preaching out of the Old Testament. It's also not just doing your research in the text. You have to go back and forth all the time. Very difficult task, and kind of, I'm really pumped to do it, but it's almost like I'm pumped in a way of, like, I put forth a big task before me. You know, it's like I'm pumped in the way somebody says, I'm really pumped to build a treehouse for my kids. You know, they're like, yeah, it's going to be exciting, but at the same time, they're like, it's a lot of work. So I'm that kind of pumped about it. The beautiful thing about Hebrews that I honestly think about as we're going into it is that we're honestly, I'm just going to admit it up front to you guys so you guys are prepared for it. We're going to be in Hebrews for a long time, probably till about June. So we'll be in Hebrews from now till about June, going through chapter by chapter of the book of Hebrews. There'll be a stretch in the book of Hebrews as we get towards the end, where we call the Hall of Faith. Have you guys heard of that chapter, the Hall of Faith chapter, where we talk about all, kind of like the Old Testament saints? That'll be where we kind of dive back into the Old Testament. So for those of you guys who've been around Waypoint for a while, the way we often do our preaching series is we like to preach out of the book in the Old Testament and then preach out of the book in the New Testament. Then go back to a book in the Old Testament and then back to a book in the New Testament. So what we're kind of doing, combining in this one book series in Hebrews, is we're going to do all out of the Hebrews in the New Testament, but we're going to do our Old Testament part by doing the Hall of Faith. Sound good? Very cool. You guys are like, I don't care. Just wanted to let you know, in case that one person cared. John Calvin says about Hebrews, There is indeed no book in Holy Scripture which speaks so clearly of the priesthood of Christ, which so highly exalts the virtue and dignity of that only true sacrifice which he offered by his death, which so abundantly deals with the youth of ceremonies as well as their abrogation, and in a word, so fully explains that Christ is the end of the law. Of all the New Testament letters, Hebrews seems to be one of the most, kind of the Christians find the most strange and alien. We talk about Melchizedek, Aaron, angels, Moses, sacrifices, and priests. It's, it's very uh, kind of intricate and often confusing. Specifically, he spent multiple chapters talking about a guy named Melchizedek, whom I've tried very hard, and Gina's going to be annoyed with me because I'm still bringing it up, to name a child after what a great name. Just to throw that out there. Those of you who have no children yet, or who need a name for a child, that was Gina. Did you do that? Man, talented. Melchizedek would be a phenomenal name, just to throw that out there. So one way to look at this, and I just want to give you guys a little bit of background on the book of Hebrews, because we're going to spend so much time in this. I want you guys to have a good idea of the big picture of Hebrews, who wrote it, who it was for, so that we're prepared as we dive into it for the next couple of weeks. Not a couple of weeks, many weeks. One of the first things you do when studying a book of the Bible is to try to get the big picture. And the big picture of Hebrews is fairly straightforward. Um, I've read many different commentaries, and a lot of the different commentaries have it as, like, Hebrews says, it's about the journey. Or Hebrews could be about the end of the law, or Christ's fulfillment. But I like to say it this way. One of the as one of the commentaries simply puts it, he says, Jesus is the greatest. So one of my favorite commentaries puts it that way. He says, what is the main purpose? What is the main message? What is the main topic? What is the main theme of the book of Hebrews? Is Jesus is the greatest. And I love it. 
great starting off is the picture. It says Jesus is greater than the angels, chapters 1 and 2. Greater than Moses, chapter 3 and 4. Greater than the priest and high priest, chapter 4 through 7. And even greater than the Old Testament sacrifices, 8 through 10. And so since he's the greatest, even looking at the heroes, they look forward to the Messiah coming. And then for us, after that, chapters 11 through 12, we look back and look to him as our source. He's the greatest. So if we get caught up in some of the little bits of it, just remember this. Hebrews is a book that literally just proclaims over and over and over again, Jesus is the greatest. Now, from the earliest times, there have been a variety of positions on the authorship of the book of Hebrews. We'll talk on two issues, but basically put, we don't know exactly who wrote the book of Hebrews. Because like other books in the New Testament, it doesn't say, I, Paul, which would make it a lot easier to know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Or it doesn't say, Peter, an apostle, or it doesn't say, uh, Luke, writing to you, Theophilus. It literally just doesn't, give an, a, a, doesn't say who wrote the book. So it's not a simple task. As a matter of fact, um, Clement of Alexandria, who lived from 150 to 215, and Origen of Alexandria, who lived from 185 to 254, acknowledged that even back then, they had no idea. Even as early on, um, uh, the church historian Eusebius, in his book, referred to Origen, who was roughly around the time of, where was Origen at? Uh, or it's roughly around the time of 150 or 185, that Origen says, but as to who wrote the epistle of Hebrew, God knows the truth of the matter. So Origen reflects that many, even in his day, did not know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but they all, all the early church fathers, all the apostles, and all the early church leaders at the time established it as canonized book, established it as authoritative, and established it as the same authority as every other letter in the New Testament as we currently know it. So the short answer is we don't know. We have some clues. Throughout church history, there have been numerous answers. Some people thought it was Paul. As a matter of fact, for the longest period of time, people thought it was Paul, which kind of doesn't make sense because in every one of Paul's other letters, he always says that he's the one writing it. So it'd be kind of weird to have the first letter that he says. Plus, it's not in his typical style. Others, Martin Luther in particular, thought it was Apollos. Other people thought it was Priscilla. Other people thought Barnabas. But we don't know. We just have no clue. But we do know this, that it was accepted immediately as an official letter written um, and canonized by the people. But we're going to take some time looking at two different elements of what, what we can know about the author. One is that he's a Hellenistic Jew. In the first place, the author of Hebrews um, would agree that uh, though Paul didn't write it, it was, it's very natural to conclude that this is somebody who knew deeply the Old Testament who knew it so well that it was taught in it, raised in his traditions, but raised in a different manner, raised not actually from Israel, but actually from more of a Greek context. The way they quoted the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament in particular, is one of those keys. His vocabulary and style actually give an evidence of a mastery of the language of, of Greek language even more so than Luke does in Hebrews. So somebody who really knew Greek, somebody who grew up knowing Greek, but also, but and this is the important part, radically knew the Old Testament, knew the promises, was able to quote it over and over again. As a matter of fact, quoted over 78 different times um, in, the, in the book of Hebrews. We also know this person was what we call, what they, the one commentator calls a passionate intellectual. And I love that term. Because there's a lot of intellectuals, people who study academics, who get a bum rap of being people who are not passionate, 
which I tend to say if you're an intellectual who are passionately pursuing a sub, or you're pursuing a subject matter, that typically makes you passionate. So this was somebody who was an academic who knew the text, studied the language, studied the, the traditions and the teachings and the law, was passionate, but also, also very passionate about it. But not only passionate about that, he was also passionate about the people he was writing to. And then the question, next question is, who was he writing to? The book of Hebrews doesn't identify its audience by name, city, or region like it does with other places. But there's a certain factor that we can know. And I was just going to dive over them really quickly. Number one, we know that they're from Jewish background. Probably diaspora Jewish, but they are Jewish traditionally, culturally, religiously. These are people who um, just knows all the promises of the prophets who, when you're speaking to them, know. It's like culturally, if you're speaking to certain people from different regions, you just know certain things to say. You know, for example, if you're talking to somebody from New York, you know to talk about the Yankees or the Mets or whatever it may be. If you know about, if you're talking to somebody from like Miami, you know not to mention any references with snow. So you know the audience is Jewish because they knew, he knew exactly how to speak to them. You know, all the issues and the suffering and the struggles, all that they were looking for, they knew that, oh, okay, here's where it was, here's how traditionally and culturally you should know about this. Two, they're polyhellenistic. In other words, they were not living in the region of Israel. Three, and this, the next two are the ones I want you to really get. We know that they were maybe immature in their faith. The way Hebrews 5.12 says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. So in other words, it's saying that these are people who've kind of heard the gospel message, has been taught by great teachers, but they're kind of like stagnating a little bit. And Paul, uh, the author of Hebrews is saying, you guys need to grow. So people in need of growth. And lastly, they were persecuted. There are two well-known periods of persecution in the early church, uh, early Christians in the first century. One, in, 89, or in 49 AD, the Roman Emperor Claudius kicked out and persecuted the Jews from the city of Rome. And in 64, Emperor Nero persecuted all the Christians with a massive persecution. So as we read through the book of Hebrews, it becomes evident that the original audience had already faced persecution in the past. Some of them were suffering in the present. And the author's expectation is that they're going to suffer even more so in the future. If you read 10, 32, and 35. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those who were treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourself had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. So you see here that the author praises his audience for their strength when they were persecuted in those earlier days. But he also encouraged them not to throw away their confidence. In other words, suggest that the audience was still facing public and official persecution of some sort. Hebrews 13.3 says this, Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. So from this verse, you can see that the audience were also still having people who were suffering for their faith, for who they were. So they were persecuted people. The audience of Hebrews faced many issues, as the author mentions in chapter 10. They faced 
various forms of suffering. They've lost property. They've been imprisoned. They've been subject to public ridicule. And he's still urging the readers at this point, as he writes, to be willing to bear the reproach of Christ. The suffering has escalated, not, said, not to the shedding of blood yet, but it seems that the author is saying the suffering is going to escalate. It's going to get worse. But be assured that you have victory in Jesus. So this is the context so far of this great book. You see, we don't know who the author is, but we know he's from Jewish background. We know that he's a passionate intellectual. And he's writing this book to people who are Jewish in their background, probably living roughly around Rome, away from their home country, who are, heard the gospel, heard the faith, who are growing in it, but kind of stagnant at this point. But they've suffered persecution. So what then is the author? This is the content of the book, but what then is the author trying to tell them? This unknown author speaking to people whom he knows very well and loves. He knows that they've suffered persecution, that they're suffering now and will suffer much more. He knows that they're young in their faith and need to grow. So what is the main message, the main point that he wants to communicate in his letter? And I said earlier, the author starts with it. Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. See him. Know him as the greatest. See, I want you to get this. In the midst of this context, in the midst of knowing that this author knows his people, knows that they've suffered, knows that they need to grow in their faith, knows that they're people who've heard the gospel, who've been walking in faith for a little bit, what do they need to hear more than anything else? They need to be shown again that Jesus is the greatest. Can I tell you this right now, really quickly, before we dive into it some more? Before, if you don't remember anything else today, you don't remember anything about the author or the audience or anything else. Just remember this. What he believed they needed to know and hear more than anything else is he believed that they needed to see that Jesus as the greatest. Can I tell you that this is exactly what you need today? What I need today? Is we need to see and believe that Jesus is better. Can you get an amen to that? Amen. amen. Let's dive into chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. If you think about all the ways God spoke in the Old Testament, he revealed himself through visions and dreams. He spoke through a burning bush. He, he was, um, spoke in whirlwinds. He wrote on walls. He even wrestled with a guy. But he also spoke through a donkey. You know, he pulled a Shrek and spoke through a donkey. He's spoken so many ways, but then it says in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. By his son. Literally in this, by his son, literally is translated best as by in his son, which doesn't make sense in English, so it says by his son. But literally it's this idea that the prophets had given word of God, but Jesus was the word of God. It's this idea that he's the imperfect embodiment of the Father. That back in the day, people would, would show a picture. They'd speak. It's not saying, hey, let me tell you about my wife. She's this and this and this and this and this. Isn't she awesome? But you're like, okay, I, I hear you, but I can get a picture of your wife. But then I'm like, hey, this is my wife. It's a totally different thing. And this is what this is saying is that back in the day, the prophets gave a picture of who God is. He spoke to them in this way. But in these last days, God completely revealed himself. I had a professor named John Frame in seminary, and he had this apologetic that I love, this kind of way of kind of defending the faith, the, sharing the gospel. And the simplest version of this kind of goes like this, that we can tell 
that by the way we crave knowledge of God, this relationship with the deity, it's this crave, this, we have this craving innate inside of us to be known and to be in relationship with God or a deity, that, that if there is a God, then he is a God that wants to be also be known and craves to, to be, be in relationship. And so he said that if there is a God then, and by the way we humanly, innately, every human condition has a desire to be known and in relationship, and if there is a God then, that means this God then would want to reveal himself, would want us to have a relationship with him. And John Frame would then say, well, in Christianity, not only do we have a book, a text, that he chose to reveal himself to us, but he also fully revealed himself, fully, not in part, not a piece of him, but fully revealed himself in Jesus. And I was like, oh, that's, that's really good, John. I didn't say that to him, because he was, it was Professor Frame, but, you know. And this Jesus, this perfect embodiment, this is the ultimate culmination. This is who God is. Think about that. The God of the universe who we just think is so transcendent, the God of the universe in the Old Testament who is so glorious that we could never possibly gaze on him, fully revealed himself as Jesus so that we can know him, so we can see what God is like. We can see how he acts and speaks and talks and moves, what he does. We can know God. Then it says, verse, to whom he appointed the heir of all things. Now the writer starts, this is kind of his start right here saying, yes, here's, here it is. And the last time God spoke through, uh, he used to speak to the prophets, but in these last days he spoke to us, his, his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. He started this new move. He's saying, he's going to show you how Jesus is greater. He's the heir. The heir the one, means the one that's all coming to. If you think of like a father preparing an estate for his one and only son, you know, it's, the heir is the one who's it's all coming to. It's all his. Everything that God created, everything that God did on earth, it was all for Jesus. The prophets were pointing to something, and Jesus was the thing that they were pointing to. He was the end goal. He was the ultimate result. He was the point. And then it says, through whom also he created the world. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus created all things and it beholds it by all his power. None of the other prophets did that. I mean, think about the sheer magnitude. This is a crazy huge world. From the highest peaks to the depths of the sea, Jesus created it. He threw out the stars. He created the countless galaxies. He was like, he's like, like uh, you guys ever see Men in Black, anybody? Old school Men in Black movie? Do you guys remember the end of the credits in Men in Black where he kind of like zoomed out of the galaxy? Anybody else remember this? Raise your hand remember this. I don't feel alone. Thank you. And it zooms out and zooms out and all of a sudden you see these like weird alien looking creatures and they're like playing marbles with the galaxies. You know, sometimes I think about it like that, which is crazy weird. I shouldn't, but I do. Like here's Jesus. He's so powerful, so much bigger than we can ever comprehend that the universe is like marbles to him. Galaxies. And he just can throw it out there and he can will it and speak it into being. The author of Hebrews is making sure we get the magnitude of who Jesus is. He created. He is God. Not just a prophet. Not just a teacher. Not just a philosopher. Not just a miracle man or a holy man. He is God himself. He is the creator. And he upholds the universe. He's the very radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature. You guys, anybody used to put a silly putty back in the day? Right? 
you know, wh what would you do with silly putty that you could do? You guys know what I'm talking about? When you could put some like newspapers or something, right? Right? How crazy is that that you can actually do that? I, was, I thought that was nuts when, when, when silly putty first happened. I was like, what? Looks just the same on putty off a of paper. It's crazy. This is what I think of when I think the very imprint. You know, a lot, a lot of people use the whole signet ring, you know, where like the king's royal ring and you dip it into wax. And that's the imprint. Like, this is my authority. I like using silly putty as an illustration instead. Silly putty is God, Jesus is exactly the, the very imprint, the very, the very nature of who God is, the very power and authority. You know, I love it when people say Josiah is like a mini me. You know, I love it. Me and Gina always argue about who Josiah looks more like. And we love it when, he, when somebody says, Josiah looks more like Gina, Josiah looks more like me. And I love it. But that is not even close to what this is saying. Because Josiah is a totally different, separate person. As much as he looks like me or acts like me, he's not me. Jesus is God. He's the very radiance of his glory. I want you to get that, the exact imprint. He is God, and we can know him fully. The whole point ultimately comes down to this. Jesus was fundamentally a different type of message from God. Other prophets gave the word of God. Jesus is the word of God. I'll say that again. Other prophets gave the word of God. Jesus is the word of God. Now, he became, verse 4, so much superior to the angels as the name as he inherited is superior to theirs. This whole first chapter basically has one point. Christ is superior. He's superior to all the prophets, to all the angels, and any other spiritual authority. Prophets and angels gave the word of God. Jesus was the word of God. That to which the prophets pointed falsely, Jesus embodied perfectly. Jesus is better. And now why do the people need to hear this? Remember, they grew up in this tradition of it's all about the law. They grew up saying the most biggest hero of my faith is Moses. Oh, that's the guy. Abraham. David. And these are the guys that are our heroes, and it's all about what they said. And they were saying, oh, well, the falsely interpreted. They were saying that, you know, I got to follow this law. I got to do this. And what people are saying is, no, no. The gospel said that Jesus came and fulfilled the law. He lived it perfectly. And what, what the gospel or what the law was pointing to, Jesus came and completed. That the law and all of its elements was always pointing to Jesus. And every person in the Old Testament, every person in the Bible, every story in the Bible was always pointing to Jesus, is what the author of Hebrews is saying. It's all about him. This is what Tim Keller says, and I love this. Jesus is a true and better Adam who passed a test in the garden and whose obedience is now imputed to us. Jesus is a true and better Isaac who's not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was actually sacrificed for us. Jesus is a true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord, and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is a true and better Job, a truly innocent sufferer, who intercedes for his stupid friends. Jesus is a true and better David, whose victory became ours, even though we never lifted a stone to help him. He's a true and better Samson, crushed under the weight of the wicked world to conquer our enemies and save us. He's a true and better Jonah, who is cast out into the storm so that we can be brought in. He's the real Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so that the angel of death can pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bed, bread, 
in the end, the Bible's really not all about you. It's all about him. The message that the author of Hebrews thought they needed to hear and have repeated over and over again is this beauty and glory and majesty of Jesus. In the midst of persecution and suffering, that is what they needed. In light of their need to grow and mature in their faith, they needed to see that Jesus is better. My people, we need to see that. We need to leave with a deeper understanding and need to see Jesus is better and greater. Better and greater than all your concerns and desires. He's greater than all your fears and excitements. He's greater than your past, your present, and your future. He who created the world and holds the universe by its power knows and loves you. Get that. What we need today is to see that see Jesus more clearly. My friend uh, was recently over. One of my my, be- my best friend growing up, kind of had a surprise visit, which is kind of like crazy for Gina because he has three kids. And it's, so, we had this past Wednesday. He came over, three kids, my best friend and his wife, and it was fun. But man, it was chaos. Three little kids. I think the oldest is six, six, four, and two. Right? Is that what it was? Yeah. It was chaos. But it was fun. And one night, my friend said said to come with him, and he said, you know, hey, come here, come here. And the kids were all in bed, and I was like, what's up? He goes, come, let's go look at my kids. They're so cute when they're sleeping. And I'm like, dude, I haven't been a parent that long. The one thing I know is never, never mess with a sleeping kid. You know, I mean, it, it's, no, no, no. That's like, it's like trying to walk. You don't mess with a sleeping dragon, you don't mess with a sleeping kid, you know? And he had all his kids in the same room, too, which I thought was crazy. But he put them all in the same room, and he was like, no, come on, come on, let's just open up. It'll be okay. If they wake up, they wake up. And I'm like, you say that because you're going to make your wife take care of them if they do. But all that to say, he said, let's go look at them. I'm like, all right, but I've learned a lot. You don't mess with a sleeping kid. And we go in, and we open the door, and he sees his kids uh, there sleeping. And they're in Josiah's room. That was the room that they were in. And they were just so sweet. And he's like, oh, look at them. Aren't they so cute? And I said, yeah, but I'm, I'm scared the whole time. I'm like, yeah, they're so cute, but shh. <laughs> you know, just get out of here, man. They're going to wake up any second. I've never felt, I, I felt like I was like a thief in a house or something. I was like, get out of here, man. Don't make any noise. But you know, I realized something is that we often think that way with kids because, you know, obviously kids are so chaotic. So I went downstairs and my wife was already in bed and Josiah was in bed with her because they were in Josiah's room. And usually all I think about is don't wake up Josiah. You know, like I, I don't think about anything else. But then I just went into, walked into the room and I just sat there, and I stood there, and usually I'm, like, frustrated because if Josiah's in our bed, that means I get the feet. You know, I always get the feet. You know, I don't know why, but we, we have a king bed, too, so I don't know what it is. But he likes to put his head on my wife and then lay horizontally. <laughs> why do that? I don't understand. It's a big bed. Just lay down normal. But no, no, head on Josiah, feet in my face. That's what he likes to do. Or head on Gina, feet in my face. And so usually my first thought is when Josiah's in the bed, I'm like, oh, I'm not going to get good sleep. Feet's going to be in my face. But I stood there that night, and I just looked at them sleeping. Man, it's so beautiful. I mean, I don't know. There's something about watching your child sleeping. And um, I don't know. There's just something about it. That your, your baby boy at rest sleeping with your beautiful wife just laying there. At peace. You know, the busyness of life, raising a child, working, living in the midst of that, you don't often watch people sleeping. 
If you do, it, you're kind of creepy. But, but for me, watching them, I was just overwhelmed. I just was more in love. And I don't know, just stopping and seeing that just kind of shook me and made me more just like aware of what, what it is that I get to be a part of in relationship with and I get to have every day. And it changes you when you see it that way. I don't know what's going on in your life right now. Maybe it's all great. Maybe it isn't. Maybe you're suffering. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're busy just doing life. Can I tell you this, though? No matter where you're at, what you need, what I need, what others need, is just to stop and see Jesus. See, that moment of me seeing my wife and my child, that, that shakes me. That makes me, like, refocus, rethink it's all worth it. And I can do it well now. Can I tell you this? Even more beautiful, and it's hard to say this, but even more beautiful than my wife and child is Jesus. Even greater than my wife and child is Jesus. And what I need more so, even to see my wife and child, is to see Jesus. Because he allows me, by his grace, to be the husband and father, pastor and friend, brother, co-laborer, kingdom advancer that he's called me to be. What you need is to see Jesus. To be reminded that everything was made by him and the word and the prophets pointed to him. Don't you need that reminder today? Everything was made by him and everything in the universe is upheld by him. He has all power, all authority. He is the heir of all things. And he knows you, he chose you, he loves you, he died for you. Don't we need to hear that today? Don't we need to know that even when life gets hard, he is our anchor in this tough world? And ultimately, hear this, hear this, ultimately there will be a day when his kingdom is consummated, when it's all said and done. There will be a day where there will be no more tears, no more suffering, and the sword will be beaten down, and there will be no more war. And we will all be family together. But till that day, till that day, we get to start living that out now. And the reminders of seeing him, of being called to him, that is what compels us when we look at Jesus. That's why Hebrews is so clear. Fix your eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Not just because that's our goal. It is our goal. But also because that helps us to run, doesn't it? It helps us to run when we see the love, when we see the beauty, the very radiance of God. And that's what I love about communion. This is my tie into communion, by the way. What I love about communion is this, is that we need those reminders, those times to stop and behold. We need those moments in our lives. We need those nights when my wife and child are sleeping so we can just look and see and be overwhelmed. We need those times where Jesus knows us, and he says, do this in remembrance of me. We need those times to say, let's look upon and gaze upon the beauty of Jesus. And we do that in communion. When we come together as a family and partake in this family meal, what we do is we look upon Jesus, the one whose body was broken and whose blood was shed. And we look upon the one who says, I am greater than death itself. We look upon our very ransom for our soul. So that's what communion is, guys. Here at Waypoint Church, we practice communion on the first Sunday of every month. 
And as we do so, we treat this as a family meal. That we come together and we invite those who know and profess faith in Jesus Christ to partake in this family meal with us. And we practice this by intinction, where we take, uh, the, uh, everything is gluten-free, so we take the gluten-free bread, and we dip it into the cup, and we partake. And we do this, guys, because we believe Jesus, one, has called us to do it, this beautiful gift and means of grace. But two, we also do this because Jesus also said this, we do this in remembrance of him. So we want to behold him. We want to observe him. We want to know him more. And we also do this because we believe that he's given us so much, he gives us so much grace in this meal that we take as a family together. So I'm going to ask the elders to come forward and those who are helping serve communion to come forward.